in the world is happening on Wall Street. Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you? It's David. It is the podcast, but this is a very special one-off podcast brought to you in conjunction with our partner, IG, the finance company. Now, we're a couple of days ahead of the American election. We're going to focus on not so much the election itself, but what it means for stock markets, for bond markets, for global equities, for tech companies, for the NASDAQ, for trade wars, for the dollar, for the whole gamut of prices that constitute the global market. So John and I are going to discuss this for a little bit and then, thankfully, we have a proper expert on the line after this. (laughs) Somebody will correct us all. (laughs) Exactly, a man called Dimitri Zabalin from IG. We're going to talk to Dimitri in a couple of minutes, but John, how are you, my mate? I'm good, I'm good. Did You You didn't see the debates. No, I do sleep every now and then. No, I, I stay up. I love staying up watching this stuff. But the one thing that really struck me is Trump keeps going on about the markets. And I kind of wonder, like, I, I personally have no interest in the markets. I have no investments or anything like that. And I wonder how many people in America do. And I wonder how many, or how it affects the average punter. I know he goes on about the 401ks and all this kind of stuff. But I think you need to explain that to me a bit. Well, I think, first of all, we've got to stand back and say, in the United States, John, there is this 401ks that people manage their own pensions. So yeah. in Ireland and in Britain and certainly all over the European Union, what happens is you pay money into a pension fund. That pension fund anoints a manager and that manager manages your pension a little bit in stocks, some in property, some in cash, etc. But we don't really pay attention to it, okay? Yeah. Because there's a perception, maybe the wrong perception, that sometimes in the future, a professional, a member of the elite will look after it for us. In the United States, they have a much more vibrant trading culture. They have a much more vibrant capitalist culture, actually, than we have. Mm. So the 401k is the legal mechanism by which Americans manage their own pensions. And what they do is they take a much more active interest than we do. So therefore, psychologically, A, there's a lot more Americans involved in the stock market, but B, psychologically, there is a link between the markets and consumer confidence that we do not have in Europe to the same extent. Right, they might of have course, it, yeah. You might have it in regional parts of Europe. Like, for example, somewhere like the city of London, the impact of markets is much more, but not necessarily through the actual indices, but through people's wages, through rents, because the city mm. of London is so dominant in London. So, I mean... I know the Yanks talk about it a lot. They talk about it a lot because they're more invested. But again, let's be clear, the vast majority of people wouldn't know the stock market from a kick in the head. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, yeah. you know, so if if they are relying on the stock market so much, are they more boned up about it or are people just guessing? Or what? what well, I don't know. Ever, the amazing thing about it, you ever end up in a hotel room in America <laughs> and you turn on the telly and there's all sorts of ticker tape with... Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. No, it's part of the. It's part of green, good, red, bad. Apparently, yeah, it's part of their cultural inheritance, I think, and but it does have a massive impact. So when I was a, a young fella doing this carry on when I was working in banking, a actually Paul McCulley, remember Paul? Mm. Paul, mm. who was my boss, who ended up being the chief economist of Pimco and the head of strategy 
PIMCO. So he's very, a man very much clued in. He said, look, David, he says, you've got to know three things in markets to get mm. a view. You've got to have a view on the dollar, where it's going to go. Yeah. You've got to have a view on the long bond, the long-term American interest rate, the 30-year treasury rate. And you've got to have a view on the price of oil. If you anchor your worldview with a strong conviction on where these three prices are going to go, you can figure out the world thereafter. Okay. And I thought it was really good advice because there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of, it's a crazy amount of, you know, you could spend your entire day, seven I'm, days a I'm week, sure, yeah. worrying about this. So Paul was saying, focus on what's important and then let's see. Now, obviously what happens is when you have a change in government, you have a change in policy. And when you have a change in policy, all those three factors are going to be impacted. So let's say, for example, we're going to talk to Dimitri in a second because he's mm. the proper expert. But let's say, for example, we thought whoever's new in the White House is going to come in and they are going to expand the fiscal deficit. So they're going to spend lots of money. They're going to fix America. Trump might say, make America great again. Biden might say, a more inclusive America. But their idea is they're going to change policy, Yeah. right? Yeah. So what that has is if you say they're going to expand the deficit... So what they're doing is they're taking money they don't have, putting it into the economy, driving, if you can imagine them with their foot on the accelerator of the economy. So they're yeah. pushing down on the accelerator. Mm-hmm. And they're, what they're going to do is they're going to try and expand the economy, make it grow quicker than it's growing now. That has impact on those three prices. So what, I, what would happen is if the economy is being pushed, if the accelerator has been pushed down by a politician who is doing what politicians do, and I would think rightly so, is borrowing from tomorrow to pay for today in order to fix problems today. Yeah. What happens then, the economy starts to grow. When the start, economy starts to grow, you think, well, you know what? Maybe somewhere down the future we're going to get inflation, right? Because we're growing. Because at a certain stage, the economy will come up against its buffers, which is called the, basically the natural rate of unemployment. It's the rate at which wages start to rise. Right. So you right. push the economy, you grow it, you try and grow it then the rate of unemployment falls. Then as unemployment falls, workers say, well, you know what? If you want me as your worker, you're going to, have to pay me more. Wages start to rise. Now, when that trickles into, that will cause the long bond rate to rise. So the expectations about inflation in the future will begin to rise. Okay, right. right. So as the long bond rate rises, it means the rate of interest in the United States rises. Okay? Now, what that means is that if you make an investment in the United States in dollars... yeah you will get more interest next year than you got this year. Okay. Right? So money will flow into the United States. Now, what that does is it pushes up the price of the dollar. So already, two of your ideas. One, you have a view on the long bond rate, you think it's going to go up. Then you think that's going to go up. You have a view on the dollar, you think it's going to rise against other currencies. Okay. And then finally, what happens to the price of oil? The United States is the biggest consumer of oil. So if you think the United States is going to expand its economy... It's going to grow quicker. What you also think is the price of oil is going to rise. Right. Yeah, so you see yeah. what I mean? Okay, all, that all makes sense. And they're yeah. all your basic prices. And off then you can say, well, if you're investing in Argentina or Brazil or Latin America in some way, you have a framework of which to, to work. Or if you're thinking about Europe or if you're thinking about Asia. So these are the sort of things that I, when I was doing it, in my simplistic <laughs> worldview, seemed to work. But Dimitri, on the other hand, is a man from IG who looks at this stuff, excellent blog, looks at this stuff every day. We are delighted to have him here with us. Dimitri Zabalin, how are you? I know you're in California, so God bless you for getting out of bed so early. (laughs) 
It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was a great intro. Well, listen, no, so Dimitri, let's, let's cut to the chase. Tell me what the difference is, if there is any, or if we can decipher any between both candidates right now. Like in terms of what American policy would look like, let's say on the 10th of November, when this is all done and dusted. That's a great question. And really that's the multi-trillion dollar question if you take out the process over four years. So the major implications of uh, either presidency under Donald Trump again for another four years or Joe Biden are, in my view, vastly different, which is why there's such a premium being put on this election, on this very binary outcome. I think the key areas that you need to look at are domestic policy and foreign policy. One of the biggest questions is what are trade relations going to look like between the U.S. and China, but not just between the U.S. and China, between the EU and the U.S., because those because that relationship there is comparatively less adversarial relative to China. And we saw how in 2018, and you're talking about the dollar dynamic and crude oil and interest rates, which was, by the way, a wonderful explanation and very easy to follow narrative. I, I learned it and many years ago. You know, when you learn things as a kid, yeah. you don't forget them. It's like, it's like learning an abacus, you know, it kind of sticks in the head, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And those looking at those core assets is a good idea because it allows you to get a very strong foundation of what it looks like. Because as you mentioned, the U.S. is one of the biggest consumers of oil. But crude oil and just petroleum in general, it is one of the key inputs in, in, in almost every economy's growth model. So if you're looking at where crude oil is going, that's a very, in my view, a very uh, helpful barometer as to gauge the uh, economic vitality of certain countries to see if, okay, we are getting more growth, we're opening up more factories, more businesses, we're going to need more energy inputs. So then naturally the demand for this energy rises and then the price of crude oil then subsequently rises. But in the U.S., for instance, we saw the dollar was strengthening um, because of the Fed raising interest rates, but we also saw the economy, that's because it was a result of the economy stabilizing, but only stabilizing, but as a matter of fact, growing. And you got a big injection after um, the corporate tax cuts occurred. You talked about in terms of uh, uh, deficit spending, that was to a certain degree sort of a cousin related to that, to the extent that it allowed these corporate tax cuts to give a short-term burst to economic activity. And we saw uh, the unemployment uh, rate hit multi-decade lows. But also the important aspect of that is that at the same time, you had a trade war with China, which began to derail that growth. And then you saw not only uh, relations between the, the U.S. and China sour, but you sort of saw this uh, almost you know, political pathogens. It's, you know, we're in a pandemic right now. This seems appropriate to use where you saw multiple trade wars break out all over the world, not only between the U.S. and China in the EU and U.S., but between Malaysia and India, between Iran and Brazil. But you had various intra-emerging market trade wars occur. And while each of those individually didn't derail growth, the compounded effect of disrupted supply chains, uncertainty about uh, cross-border business investment, that began to derail growth. So that's one of the biggest questions is if Trump is reelected, what are trade relations going to look like with China? Because we were supposed to have a talk on August 15th and that never happened because even the accounting measures that both sides use are different. And of course, each side uses the accounting measure that supports their argument. So yes. naturally then they're not even almost speaking the same language to a I, certain degree. As I always say to my students at Trinity, the, the university here down the road that I teach in uh, with respect to statistics, that every statistic has an agenda. 
and never, ever <laughs> think the statistics are beyond prejudice and bias and doubt. So, as you said, each side is going to come with its its own measurement. And so, so, so you think, this is interesting, you think <laughs> that the difference between Biden and Trump from day one from the markets will be a perception, not really of macroeconomic policy and fiscal and monetary mix and all that good stuff. It will actually be about trade wars. You think that's the the issue that markets will focus on, let's say, not early next week, the week after next? Yeah, no, I really think it will be because if you look at the language now, Trump at one point made a comment about China saying that we need to decouple from them. And then China is also, uh, I think this week it's... Um, Having its uh, having an, uh, it's one of its meetings about its next five year plan from 2021 to 2025, and in there they have begun to emphasize a greater need for uh, less reliance on the West, but specifically the outside, really the outside world, and more developing their internal industries like their chip manufacturing sector. Um, following the uh, Trump administration's regulations on somewhat limiting access to China. So naturally, what that does is that that disrupts supply chains that have gotten used to this. A foundation of having China be an integral part of the global economy, but then seeing that fragmentation and that sort of reverse globalization from a market-oriented perspective, that means uncertainty because we don't know what the future is. And that's sort of really what it comes down to is that with the trade wars, we don't know to what degree it may escalate because the tit and tat that we saw in 2018 um, was frequent and it was aggressive. But you also saw a number of policy issues get involved in it. Like with the issues over Hong Kong, we then saw the U.S. the Congress. Uh, we saw Congress, I believe it was called the, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, that China then said we have, will have specific countermeasures for. We didn't hear about those countermeasures. I'm not even sure if they even have ensued. But from the market's perspective at that time, this meant more uncertainty because it meant more tit for tat trade wars. And because of the massive implications of that on the global economy and on uh, geopolitical relations and on the integrity of third-party institutions like the WTO, we don't know what's going to happen there. And we don't know how severe relations will get. So yeah, I think that's really one of the big things that markets are going to be looking at. It's, it's fascinating because I think you've put your finger on it. You know, John, we, we kicked off this discussion with, you know, well, markets, markets, you know, in terms of for the average dude, right? But your point, I think, is very opposite. It's the whoever is in the Oval Office sets the tone for global geopolitical negotiations. So if it is a free marketeer like Joe Biden, an old school Democrat who really believes what I would call in the Bill Clinton playbook, you know, the, the, the playbook of Larry Summers, Bill Clinton, Robert Rubin, all that stuff we've seen over the years. It's basically, we go, we hopefully we go back to the world in 2014, 2015. If it's Donald Trump, you have a profound, profound change in bias and, and in attitude and in tone. And this will percolate down. And as you said, you know, if the US and China are not oper operating a free trade regime, well, then what's the incentive for Brazil and India? What's the incentive for Argentina? What's the incentive for Mexico? What's the incentive, you know, for other areas? So let's, if we, we take this, so you think trade wars is the big issue. But Dimitri, Despite those profoundly different worldviews, what we've seen in the last couple of years, certainly the last 12 months, is this extraordinary rally. Uh, still, I mean, I know it's up and down and some get sold, but I mean, if you take the, if you take the medium term view, extraordinary rally in tech stocks, right? You know, from, let's say from where we were three or four years ago to now. Uh, what do you think is going to happen to the NASDAQ? 
That's a great question. So you saw this really interesting dynamic where following this sell-off in March um, in global equities, um, some of the declines were spectacular, like the German DAX index reversed four years of gains. I think it was only in a matter of weeks. Um, but what's interesting is that we have seen global equities rebound um, apart from the past few weeks or so. And tech was leading that. And I think the reason why the NASDAQ was outperforming its peers was in large part due to the coronavirus. And that's because at that time you had lockdown measures. Now, if you can't go to restaurants, if you can't go hiking, if you can't travel, what are you going to do? There's, there's only so many things you can do. So naturally, that put a premium on digital services, which ex helps explain why stocks like Amazon surged. We also saw Netflix rise. There are all these various other tech companies that actually outperformed their peers and helped drive this tech-leaning index um, much higher relative to its counterparts. But even within the S&P 500, there's this really interesting chart that's been floating around on Twitter where you look at how the uh, five index heavyweights are performing, which are primarily tech, relative to the rest of the index, and one is flat, and the and the top uh, five heavyweights, which are uh, tech-leaning uh, stocks, were all um, rising at quite a steep slope of appreciation. So recently, though, we've seen it somewhat trade sideways, and that, I think, has to do with ongoing U.S. fiscal stimulus talks, which, as a result of bipartisan intransience, has left markets sort of not knowing what to do, because as the provisions from the previous package expire, or rather have expired, the economy is now beginning to run on fumes and another stimulus, uh, fiscal stimulus uh, package appears to need to be injected. And even Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, who is head of, head, um, head of the central bank, the Fed, even he was emphasizing the need for fiscal stimulus. So you're seeing a strong emphasis on this uh, fiscal need, particularly in Europe, um, given the landscape there in, uh, with the Eurozone and such, that's also a great, there's also a great need of urgency there. But with the regulatory landscape, it can be tricky to do so. But I think that's what's been really driving tech stocks, um, but also just loose uh, monetary policy through quantitative easing and low interest rates, uh, particularly from the Fed. Um, that's really helped drive the index higher. So you think that irrespective of Biden and or Trump, tech stocks will continue to gain not just from the lifestyle choices which have been prompted by COVID, but for the long-term structural factors that we are becoming a more tech-savvy globe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I think as well, if you look at the generations too, in terms of looking at structural factors like demographics, Generation Y, Generation Z, which is now growing up with uh, in even more technology than the previous generation. Don't worry, this Dimitri, is becoming... John and I have six <laughs> Generation Zers between us. So we know all about these. Oh my God. We, we know about, oh, we, we can give you chapter and verse on these little creatures. And actually, yeah. not so little creatures at all, actually, well grown up creatures. <laughs> right. And with them, they grew up with a new technological benchmark than their predecessors did. And I think that you're going to see an increased premium put on digital products, but also even following the SARS outbreak, you saw uh, in the early 2000s, you saw the rise generally of digitization or rather, should I say the acceleration of it. And the coronavirus pandemic, um, I think just really, uh, not kickstarted, but rather also accelerated this trend as well. And I think those are one of the main reasons. Can I ask you about Biden? You see, those on the left 
always worry about large companies having too much influence over society. And I'm going all the way back to, to Roosevelt. I'm not Roosevelt Jr., Roosevelt Sr., Teddy, I'm talking. Yeah. Not, not non-FDR, yeah. okay? Yeah, early um, 20th century. Yeah, yeah, a long time back, right? Joe Biden, certainly if you listened to the left wing of the Democratic Party, Elizabeth Warren in particular, and Bernie, they are saying, we want to break up big tech. What do you think is going to happen if Biden gets in to tech from that angle? Yeah, no, of course. No, that's a, that's a really interesting point. So from a market-oriented perspective, what I think that means is if they're looking into, quote-unquote, breaking up these institutions, um, it, it doesn't seem the notion of breaking big tech up is sort of the, uh, the, the brother, I would say, of this notion of breaking up the big banks, which was a big slogan um, that uh, typically uh, politicians like Bernie Sanders um, held. I'm not quite sure if based off of how uh, technology companies operate in banks, that that same effect of quote unquote breaking them up would like, it's, it's unclear to what extent that would impact their performance, given how different they're structured. But I think just even the ideas themselves, again, from a market oriented perspective means, okay, if they're going to break them up, what is that going to do to their bottom line? What is, what is that going to do to their stock? And for now, despite the language that we've seen from both sides, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be impacting stocks at least, or it doesn't seem to be very clearly impacting stocks because there seem to be other higher priority items that are on the list right now, like the coronavirus and the subsequent responses like fiscal stimulus. But it's a really interesting parallel that you brought up now about how in the early 20th century, we also saw these same concerns. Um, following uh, the uh, um, uh, the, uh, the explosion of industrial economic activity in the U.S. in the late 19th century and such. And it's interesting that we are seeing that parallel now. What the response will be is unclear, but it's interesting that tech stocks don't seem to be overwhelmingly uh, bothered by it. Yeah, no, because the lesson from, you know, Rockefeller and all those, you don't ever know, like the Rockefeller Center in New York, that's where they got the ice rink, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe yeah. you'll have a Zuckerberg ice rink <laughs> in a couple of years' time, you know, after it's all been bro broken up. Anyway, let's move on to the dollar, the king dollar that we always, the Americans have a great expression, I think it was Richard Nixon's finance guy, the minister for finance, The fi I, I can't remember his name, it'll come back to me. But he was uh, on the day in which the Americans decided to tear up Bretton Woods in 72. He said to the Europeans, the dollar is our currency, but your problem, which I thought was a really nice way of putting it. <laughs> um, so what, tell me about the dollar. What do you think is going to happen? Well, so this is where, where we've had an interesting dynamic. And I think this is where uh, the model that you provided comes with one key caveat, which is that the dollar depending on the uh, fundamental context of markets. And what I mean by that is, is it where markets feel comfortable taking risks or not comfortable taking risks? The dollar may sometimes act a little funny in that way. Now, because euro dollar, I think is the most, uh, I think it's the most liquid asset in the world, liquid meaning your ability to turn it into cash as quickly as possible. I think, and at various price levels and such, um, I think that recently, because if you look at what's uh, the real interest rate, which is the nominal interest rate minus uh, inflation, you'll find that on the dollar right now, I believe the current real yield is actually negative. And so if you're operating in an environment 
where the emphasis for traders and investors is on returns, holding the US dollar in that regard with this mindset is a losing bet. But so then you're going to look for a positive dividend yield. And where can you look for that with global yields being depressed? Well, you look at perhaps stocks because they offer positive dividend yields. Now, on the other hand, if sentiment turns sour and this election as a result of all of the uncertainty that is accompanying with it sets in, markets may then shift from not wanting to prioritize returns, but thinking, you know, I'm not sure if I want to hold this investment right now. This seems a little risky. I might just want to cash out and hold and maybe re-enter later. And for that, they would likely choose to cash out in the US dollar. So with that then, if you see that exchange, you may then see demand for the dollar rise, not out of them wanting a return, but just out of them cashing out their assets and wanting to hold a highly liquid one relative to one that's relatively illiquid but offers returns. So I think the dollar operates in that kind of environment. And that dynamic has been really amplified, um, especially in the coronavirus pandemic. And seeing its price action in March was very, very interesting because the dynamic initially didn't apply to euro dollar, but it applied to, for instance, the Australian dollar and New Zealand dollar. We saw them, them fall versus the dollar. But initially, the euro actually rose relative to the dollar. So there's sometimes little exceptions to the before subsequently retreating. But well, there are sometimes exceptions to these rules. It's a funny thing. I remember years ago working in emerging markets and one of the many emerging market crises uh, that I experienced. And my boss came in to me and I was talking about the return, return on investment. And he just said, David, you're talking about the return on capital. I'm hoping for the return of capital. I.e. we don't lose our shirt completely. <laughs> Let's Brilliant. finally go back to Donald Trump. If mm -hmm. Donald Trump upsets the bookies and wins, give me your top line forecast predictions for the Dow Jones, the Nasdaq and the dollar and maybe even the long bond. Just your, what's your feeling for what that will do? Right. So that's a great question. So if Donald Trump wins, I think you're going to see a significant uh, volatility. Out. And here's why. Polls have indicated for a long time that Mr. Biden will take the White House, according to these various polling agencies that have put him ahead of Trump in some cases as um, in some cases, uh, double digits. Um, and he's roughly he's had a roughly seven point average lead. So what that means then is that because markets have had time to internalize and calibrate their expectations according to what the new geopolitical landscape, what they think will be, which in this case is Joe Biden, there's the danger of falling into a trap of unmerited certainty. And what I mean by that is that if you saw what happened in 2016, all the agencies, almost all of them, were wrong. And Mr. Trump took the White House. So you saw a significant jump in volatility because investors had to rearrange their, uh, the composition of their portfolio in order to be optimized in the new geopolitical landscape. I think if we see that happen again, because we are in a comparatively more economically delicate time, a geopolitical shock is amplified. Because typically, if you have a geopolitical shock, there is, uh, and there's an, uh, strong underlying fundamentals, that shock can be sort of absorbed. But because we're uh, in a relatively economically uh, precarious position, that volatility may be amplified. In that regard, if we see that uncertainty, we may see the dollar rise, not because investors are looking for returns, but because they're looking to cash out of uh, comparatively more risky assets and risky investments and wanting to hold 
cash while they try to figure out what's going on. I think because you, the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ, the S&P, all these various equity indices, generally speaking, are all growth anchored. So therefore, if you believe that the growth picture may be in jeopardy, you may see the stocks in those indices and then the index itself decline. And I think that has to do, again, with all of the uncertainty that comes with what another four years of Donald Trump will mean for domestic growth prospects and what that means for international relations. I've just got to get John to put his MAGA hat back on. Have you got your MAGA hat? <laughs> and T-shirts <laughs> you got and your shorts, ma- the whole of The whole thing. Listen, Dimitri, uh, thank you so much for getting up for us. That was great. That was, uh, that was an excellent, excellent solution. And we will talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Take care, Dimitri. All right. Thanks, Dimitri. Thank you, gentlemen. It's an absolute pleasure to be on this excellent. call. Thank you. So, John, that was, you know, Dimitri there, a market player, telling us what he feels is going on. And again, you know, it's in the lap of the gods, but it's very interesting to get a, an insider's view on what, what, what's going on. It's fascinating stuff. I mean, you know me. It's like the markets Far is too well, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but the markets is something that I find fascinating. It's a real kind of the dark arts. So when Dimitri's explaining where things are going to go is a real insight. But come here to me. I'm here. That's, that's the kind of economics and the finance side of things. But there's a lot more to the elections than just the economics and oh, and it's, this is this is a huge election. I mean, just with respect to the markets, I mean, the, you know, this is all about making decisions under these conditions of radical uncertainty. Yeah, radical uncertainty. Normally, and you know, you can get a good run on it. You think there's the growth rate that's going to be okay. Geopolitics kind of reasonably stable. You can you can tick a few boxes, and yeah. those, by ticking those boxes, you narrow down the latitude for making huge mistakes. And what I've noticed about markets is that, and it's a very interesting human phenomenon. Humans, it's a it's a it's a psychological default we have. Humans are much less likely to welcome losing money than they are to embrace winning money. So, in actual, what do you mean by that? Well, it's 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 a human thing that we, we what we don't like to do. We don't realize our losses. We don't like so. For example, if you take it a market that's falling. Yeah. The obvious thing to do is sell out, take your losses now, right? Sure. What most people do is they stick around because they think, you know what? Lady luck's going to change and I'm going to make everything back up again. Yeah. So what we do is we don't... The kind of gambler kind of Yeah, so we do. It's, 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 and you see it all the time with traders. Traders hate realizing losses and they hate realizing losses more than they love realizing gains. So it's a very strange dynamic. And again, it's this idea of, of uncertainty, but your point is right. I mean, the markets are a consequence of other things. And the other things are the growth of the economy, but what you've said is the view of where the world goes. You can argue that Trumpism, which is a thing, right, was undefined in 2016. So we didn't know what Trumpism was, but we knew it wasn't Hillary Clinton. So he was, he he had that idea of, you know what, I'm going to rip this up and I'm going to drain the swamp. And people say, okay, now we kind of know what Trumpism is, right? Yeah. And four more years of that will have a profound cultural change in the United States. The United States will become, for us non-Americans, a far less interesting and attractive country. We talked about this before. Yeah, from The yeah, cultural indeed. perspective. All right. So what it means then, John, is you have a victory for populism. Yeah. You have a, a victory for aggressive nationalism in the United States. Everything that the United States put together 
from 1947, arguably to 2016, the world leader, the world policeman, the backer of all great American-inspired global institutions, the United Nations, the World Bank, the IMF. I mean, these are American things. Yeah. The fear is that Trump will rip them all up. But he's having Trump, a fair go at it. At yeah, the and if he gets another four years. Biden, on the other hand, is basically, it's like voting for Bill Clinton, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what voting I mean? Voting for it's, the past. It's voting for the past. It's voting for what we know. It's voting for... Now, a lot of Americans say we, want, we don't want to go back there. Yeah. You know, Obama was, you can say Obama was a unique blip on the rise of this cultural right wing in the United States because Obama was such an amazing candidate. Like he's a one and he's, yeah, a, sure. once, he's a once in a lifetime candidate. Yeah. With a once in a lifetime story, with a once in a lifetime ability to connect with people. So you're right. You know, the cultural impact of this election is phenomenal for the world. For Europeans, absolutely the Europeans want Biden to win. There's no doubt of that. Yeah. No doubt. On every level. We also have to forget the European economy is bigger than the American economy. And people don't get that. What? The really? European, yeah, yeah, the EU economy is, is actually bigger than the United States economy. We're constantly being told that the American economy is the biggest economy in the world. Because it's a singular economy. But if you add up all of us together, actually gotcha. maybe okay. now, now, we, now with the Brits out, it mightn't be. Okay. Right? right. But uh, so the Europeans want a Biden victory. That goes back to what we know. The Asians want a Biden victory. That goes back to what we know. The Latin Americans want a Biden victory. Mm. So basically, I've never seen an election where almost the whole world wants one guy to win because that one guy promises to go back to stability, whereas Trump promises to tear up the rule book yet again. And that's the big deal. So, Mark, who do you reckon is going to be or what group is going to be driving this election? Traditionally, it has been white middle-class women, the so-called soccer moms, yeah, have yeah. been the swing. And they're going to be again... Pippa, a couple of weeks ago, you might remember we talked to Pippa Malgram. Yeah. She said that she felt that black middle-class women could be a significant minority and she felt they could lurch for Trump because she said their reaction to the violence on the streets, to yeah. the violence in the neighbourhoods, to the Black Lives Matters was, yes, we're philosophically with Black Lives Matter, but actually we want some... Law and order candidate. Yeah, they because, would look after their their kids basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so the, so who are all the ones out so the street? Their sons don't get shot. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I buy that. I think that right now, what was always intriguing for people was that white middle class women voted for Trump more than they voted for Hillary Clinton. Mm. This was a big shock to people. Particularly, it was a couple of weeks after the grabbing by the pussy escapade. Yeah, so yeah. So everyone is not going to vote for him. So I think, again, it's that I don't know if you saw Trump last week imploring middle-class women to love him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because he was yeah, saying... He was pathetic. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that they are the swing vote and they will maybe settle for Biden in bigger numbers. It's interesting because I, I actually saw kind of a Vox Pop interview with a whole load of American mothers, black American mothers. And their main reaction was very anti-Biden because they felt insulted and belittled because the Democrats assume yeah. that the black community and that's is Pippa's, going to... that's Pippa's point, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. That the black community are not bought and sold. They are a vote that needs to be cultivated in every election. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, you could be right. You could be right. It's an interesting one. But also Pippa was was the one who also said that the markets, regardless of who wins, the markets will settle down or even rally just when it's decided one way or t'other. Yeah. I mean, what they really don't want is Trump hanging on. Yeah. I mean, that's the disastrous. Yeah. And the other thing that Pippa was saying, which I found interesting, was the fact that the markets will settle or probably even rally after the election, regardless of who wins, because all the markets really want is, as Dimitri was saying, is a little bit more certainty. But of course, you know, if it's a tight enough vote, we could end up with Mr. Trump calling foul all over the place and just, you know, (laughs) barricading himself into the White House. Well, that would mean that, John, it is, it is, it's crazy to think this could happen. Yeah. But it could happen. And, uh, People will get back to normal if Trump loses but decides to leave willingly. The problem with America is, you know, the new president doesn't get in until the 1st of January. It's a long time. Yeah, 21st of January. 21st of January, even longer. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen in the next three months? Before we let you go, we'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, IG. Now, IG offers a wide range of markets to trade on. You can actually trade on over 17,000 markets. You can have out-of-hours trading or 24-hour indices. This is more than any other provider of U.S. shares. You won't find this anywhere else. IG offers trading and investment products. They invented the spread betting in 1974, and today they enable thousands of traders to seize their opportunity using spread betting. And if you prefer to own your own assets, you can buy and sell thousands of shares from all over the world with IG. And by the way, just to say, all trading and investing puts your capital at risk. CFDs are complex instruments and come with a high risk of losing money rapidly due to leverage. 76% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money. If you do understand that and you're prepared to risk your own capital, IG offers probably the best place to go. So search IG online for more. Why not?